thing I want to talk about was Thessalonians. If you didn't notice, we're in Second Thessalonians, uh, and I had teased the idea of going to Romans chapter 8. Uh, I feel like the Lord said no, um, because uh, uh, I was also supposed to deliver this message today on Thanksgiving. Well, lo and behold, the first opening section of Second Thessalonians is on Thanksgiving. And so I thought instead of, you know, sort of skipping around everywhere, I thought, why don't I just make a, be a man and make a commitment to Second Thessalonians? I said, okay, so we are going to plow through Second Thessalonians by God's grace, and after that, we'll see where we go. Second Thessalonians, remarkable letter, um, just remarkable. A lot of eschatology in this letter, and so you guys can obviously pray for me. I have kind of a tall order when we get to chapter 2. It's a very controversial subject. Chapter 2 is particularly dealing with the theology of the Antichrist. No shortage of controversy there. No shortage of views. No shortage of opinions. Uh, and so um, I need a lot of grace uh, to make it through this. But I'm confident that the Lord uh, will uh, help us to benefit from what is being talked about here. But Second Thessalonians, another letter very, very heavily eschatologically uh, involved. So We'll have a lot to do. As a matter of fact, I noticed out in the bookstore, if you have not yet, I thought, okay, since we're going to be in Second Thessalonians, I've got to plug eschatology again. And one of the books that's out there that should not be out there, meaning you guys are buying them up so fast they don't last, if you do not have Anthony Hokema's book, The Bible and the Future, and you are trying to get your bearings on where this whole eschatological, you know, Theology is that where where are you at with that? Where to start? Where to begin? I don't even know where to begin or what to think. Uh, I think Hokema is a very good guide, uh, and he is going to give you a lot of really good sound theology when it comes to eschatology. Don't agree with everything he teaches in that book, but I think vast majority very helpful. And so Anthony Hokema, Bible in the future. I should have brought it up here, you know. Uh, my friend Mike McNamara from Southern California, who is probably the most you know advent, advent uh, uh, book reader, bookworm, whatever you want to call it, that I know, he says you have to take a book to the pulpit every week, <laughs> and you have to hold it up because if the preacher holds it up, the people will buy it. <laughs> okay, just imagine I'm holding up Bible in the future in my hand, okay, and make sure that you have that on your bookshelf. Okay, let's pray one more time. Father, thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. Lord, we need your grace every day. We need your mercy. Without your grace, Lord, we have no favor with God. And without your mercy, we do not have, Father, your, uh, your provision, your blessing. Uh, without your mercy, Lord, we are exposed and opened to your wrath and your displeasure and your discipline. And so, God, we ask you, to uh, mercifully be with us today. Minister to us, Lord. I know we're gathered here. It's Thanksgiving and, and the holiday weekend that's been on everybody's mind, and we've been busy with that. But now, Lord, cause us to be more self-conscious about your word and about um, what your word declares and to set our minds and meditate on divine things, Lord. So we ask, God, would you uh, elevate our thoughts 
Would you give rise to our affections and help us to set our minds on the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God? And so, Lord, we ask that you would truly use this word, this opening section of Thessalonians, uh, to make us thankful. Uh, That's something we all desperately need. And so we pray, God, use your word now uh, with great precision. Uh, Would you perform that surgery in our souls? Would you perform that work, that transformation work that needs to happen in our inner man and conform us? Conform us uh, in greater degree into the image of your Son, Jesus. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, understandably, uh, Thanksgiving is one of those holidays that comes upon us before you know it, we're there. And before you know it, it's like Christmas time again? I just took the lights down. Or, if I'm honest, I paid the guy to take the lights down. I don't put the lights up and take them down anymore. Plus, I got my neighbors here that will testify to that. He's ain't up there putting up no lights. <laughs> so, yeah, I pay the guys to do that. But it just seems like it comes around so quickly. Thanksgiving is a holiday that is full, supposed to be full of fun and family and food, most of all. Uh, and uh, like other holidays, Thanksgiving, for many people, is hard. Uh, Thanksgiving, while we try to uh, engage in those sort of festive activities like food, like fun, like family, like giving thanks and going around the table and those kinds of things, uh, holidays do not erase the fall. And holidays are often really hard for people. Uh, I'm reminded of an old friend that I had, a terrible tragedy that happened during Christmas where a enraged uncle shot and killed his own nephew. What are those people supposed to do every Christmas when you have that hanging over you? Now, holidays don't erase the fall. They don't take away the, the, the misery of sin. They don't, you know, uh, uh, if, if we're honest about our families, then we reflect that our families are complicated uh, and that we all bring a bunch of baggage to the dinner table, right? And that there is a mixture there of good and bad. There's good times and bad times and sorrow and joy mingled all together, and uh, we all need a lot of grace. But Traditionally, our country celebrates this day, and people gather around, traditionally sit around, they have a dinner, they have a meal together, and sometimes they even say a prayer. Uh, Some people, I've even heard Google how to pray for Thanksgiving, what you know. That's because people love tradition. They love uh, the sense of normalcy, and uh, that's understandable, but what That just kind of begs the questions for us. What is true thanksgiving and what does true thanksgiving look like? I know we, during Thanksgiving, we're thankful for our family, we're thankful for our church, we're thankful for our friends, we're thankful for our health, we're thankful for our jobs, we're thankful for our homes, and the list goes on and on and on and on. But you know, as you reflect on what Paul is talking about here, what is Paul truly, truly thankful for? We're going to see that. I want to quickly uh, draw your attention to chapter 1 here, Second Thess. Chapter 1 and the way that it's broken up, because what we're going to see is three different sections of this chapter that are very important. Number one is what we're going to look at today, which really is a commendation of the church. 
He's going to commend the churches. We're going to see here for their faith and for their love. But also in verses 5 through 10, he's going to comfort the church because we start getting reminded here, what kind of church are we looking at? We're looking at a church that's going through some sort of serious persecution, enough for Paul to have to mention it repeatedly. And so he's going to do that. He's going to comfort them in verses 5 through 10. And then also verse 11 and 12, he's going to challenge them to live a life that is worthy and according to the gospel that they claim to believe in. And so today, we're in that section of commendation, verses 3 through 4. And again, Paul opens up the letter in customary fashion. Paul and Silvanus, in the book of Acts, that's Silas, in case you get confused there, okay? Uh, And Timothy, these are his companions. These are some of his closest Uh, uh, ministry partners and fellow workers that he has throughout the ministry. He says, To the church of Thessalonians in God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, I'm, I'm thinking very Trinitarianly right now, having just got done teaching on the Trinity and wrestling with the Trinity. And so now, guess what? I'm opening up my Bible and I see the Trinity everywhere because, well, that's what you would expect if the Bible teaches the Trinity. But that is what's happening here is uh, the Apostle Paul, in true Trinitarian fashion, is thanking God for this church. And so he says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as it is only fitting because of your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. And so we're going to see all these different components here of what true thanksgiving is made of. Number one, notice true thanksgiving is for what is right. For what is right. In other words, Paul says here, it is only fitting. Uh, the word there for fitting is the word axios, which means it is only worthy. Uh, it's the term that speaks of equal weight. In other words, it means that this is measured to the fruit and to the good works and to the maturity and the sanctification and the perseverance that we see in you. And so because of those good things, our thanksgiving rises to meet the occasion of their fruit and their fruitful and productive lives in Christ. And so he gives thanks for what is right, for what is good. And uh, I want to point out three things under this heading. Thanksgiving for what is right and also just the nature of true thanksgiving. But I want to point out three things. Thanksgiving is given above all by believers. Thanksgiving is also given above all to God. And thanksgiving, thanksgiving is given above all for godliness. Real emphasis on that last point because that to me is kind of what changes everything. But first of all, notice that thanksgiving is given by believers. I threw that in there because I thought this is the season where people give thanks. This is the season where thanksgiving is in the air. And as I said, people Google how to say the the, the family prayer over the Thanksgiving meal, right? So in other words, we are susceptible in our culture, like many other cultures, to false superficial spirituality during Thanksgiving and uh, Easter and, uh, and Christmas, right? You have the 
you have the, the keisters, right? They go to church on Easter and Christmas, and that's it, right? Or we, because we live in a moralistic, therapeutic, deistic culture, in other words. We live in a culture that is built on moralism. Just do the right things, and everyone will approve of you. It is therapeutic in that we do these things in order to feel good about ourselves and just kind of get by and get along in the world. Not at all because of the things that Landon was uh, teaching in Sunday school today about the wrath of God. That is not really within the worldview of your average, you know, uh, American or what have you. And also it's deistic because in reality God is totally detached from people. Uh, they, they just, we live in a culture where God is really out there. He doesn't really care what you're into, what you're about, what your life is about. He doesn't really care about your personal life, your personal habits. He doesn't really care about, you know, you know what you theme, think to be, as uh, uh, Jerry Bridges says, respectable sins of some sort, right? He doesn't really care about it. He just kind of winks at iniquity and goes on. God's got greater things that he's doing. That's what the world thinks. That's the mind of the world. That's the mindset, the wisdom, the fallen wisdom of the world. But that is not at all the wisdom of God. True thanksgiving first arises out of believers. Those who have been genuinely saved by God will thank God and live lives of thankfulness. I tell you what, you want to, uh, you want to change your personality, be more thankful. And also, notice also when he says we ought to give thanks, and that we, again, represents the pastoral uh, team of the Apostle Paul, obviously apostolic, but the pastoral team, because this is, you know, the leadership of the church thanking God for the church. And so this is arising out of the heart of a shepherd for his people, right? That's, that's, what this, that's where this comes from. And uh, also notice that thanksgiving is given above all to God, brothers and sisters. We thank God for everything. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. It says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, watch this now, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. See the specificity there, right? Uh, one of my sessions in Mexico was to preach on Trinitarian prayer. Uh, how we, are, how we are, are to pray in a Trinitarian fashion with the, the, the Godhead in mind as we pray. That's tricky, right? How many times have I heard uh, heresies, modalism, Unitarianism, right? Even from the pulpit, I've heard people slip. You know, I, I heard a very popular pastor uh, who will go unnamed just because I think it was an accident, but he actually, in the haste of what he was articulating, quickly articulated her- uh, heresy, the heresy of modalism, in the midst of his teaching because he just got kind of excited and caught up as you know we pastors and preachers do. And he, because he was not careful with the fact that he was dealing with the members of the Godhead, he actually ended up articulating that when the, fa- when the Son came to the earth, he told everybody that, I was the fa- that he was the Father. Say, whoa, that's not right. (laughs) But that's what happens when we don't approach the Trinity carefully and critically. Man, I tell you what, in studying the doctrine of the Trinity and prayer, one of the things I was left and I was impressed with, one of the things that sort of just remained and lingering in my mind was how intellectual prayer is. Write that down. How intellectual prayer is. An exercise prayer actually is. In other words, it's a methodical thought process, 
right? It is the opposite of the spirituality of the world. Spirituality of the world is empty yourself of critical thinking. Empty yourself of thinking and go to what you feel and what feels good. That is the opposite of biblical prayer. I say we should not even open our mouth to address God in prayer. Oh, Lord, oh, God, unless we know who we're talking to. Better to say less and get more right than say a bunch and get a bunch wrong. You know what I'm saying? Like It's better for us to think critically about addressing God. After all, we are addressing the triune God of Scripture. Let your words be few. Approach the throne of grace cautiously, carefully, however boldly we do. Uh, it just reminds us of our need to think in this Trinitarian fashion. Having just uh, preached on uh, the Trinity also reminded me that uh, God is uh, about fellowship, and that's what these churches are being commended for, for their fellowship, for their spiritual life together, and, uh, and, and, and therefore for their godliness among each other. And that's the bigger thing, is that not only should we pray uh, uh, to God, give thanks to God directly for every good thing that He does for us, but above all, brothers and sisters, and this is something I really want to drive home, we'll spend the majority of our time talking about this, but that thanksgiving is given above all for godliness, or just fill in the blank, for holiness, or for true spirituality, or righteousness, uh, biblical thinking, biblical living. That is what should occupy the heart and substance of our prayers. In other words, brothers and sisters, Paul, as he is thanking God for this church, he is not primarily concerned with surface-level physical temporal issues. What do I mean? In other words, he is not concerned about the building of the church. He's not concerned about the financial makeup of the church. He is not concerned about maybe the health of the church. He's not concerned about all of these uh, material and physical needs primarily he does. Don't get me wrong. I know many of you are thinking right now, so is it wrong to pray for physical, practical needs? Of course not. A uh, matter of fact, in the uh, first letter, chapter 5, the apostle already said, pray for everything, right? Give thanks in everything. Give thanks, of course. And the apostle Paul, even in Philippians 4 and Acts chapter 27, I had a few scriptures here because of this, but he prays for physical, temporal needs. That's not what's wrong. That's not what's wrong. It's the priority what is the priority in our thanksgiving? Are we primarily thankful for God because of spiritual things? See, that's where their minds are at. Their minds are at where is the spiritual condition of this church? Is the church growing spiritually? Is the church maturing spiritually? Is the church doing well spiritually? That's what I want to know. I don't just want to know who got laid off or who got cancer. I know that's big, but I want to know are they abiding? Are they persevering? Are they still confessing? Or has their trial, their condition, their situation, their socioeconomic status caused them to draw back? That's even worse. And so, this is like a Paul, like a true surgeon of the soul. He is mostly focused on the spiritual life of the believers. And this point is very challenging uh, for us, I, I listen, I think that in a sense, us Westerners, because we are so inundated with our materialistic physical comfort, we have a great disadvantage and even a danger here. The people that went to Mexico, wouldn't you agree that was part of what opened, right, Landon, kind of opened your eyes like, wow, 
You know, my first shower there was a cold shower. <laughs> In the cold. <laughs> Hot water just wasn't coming. I, just, I left it on for 10 minutes. It was not coming. I was like, I got to take a cold shower. And I did. I was remarkably awake that night. <laughs> it's been a while since I took a cold shower, you know what I'm saying? It just reminded me all these temporal, physical needs that we, uh, that, that I've grown so accustomed to, you know, air conditioning, just well, a little too hot. My wife and I, we fight, you know, it's one degrees. I'm looking for the thermostat that will do half a degree, right? And then we can compromise. We don't got none of that over there. You know what we were over there? We were frozen half the time, right? My feet were like frozen. Anyway, go to the mission field. It will show you how vain you are. Just flat out. It will show you how dependent you are on your physical comforts and your conveniences. And it will show you, wow, like I'm, I'm pretty weak, <laughs> right? Take away my technology. Take away my warm water. Take away my microwave. Take away, you know, these kinds of things. And, you know, easy access. Take away my Walmart and whatever. And it's like, wow, what, what am I left with? Everything you need. God, the Bible, <laughs> one another. You really quickly understand what's most important. And that's what Paul cares about most important. Remember, Thessalonica was a hub of the Greco-Roman world. It was very materialistic, very vain, like Corinth. It was just very materialistic, vain, pompous, gaudy, very showy, okay? Uh, those kinds of things. But, you know, maybe transferring over to our, you know, context here, the question coming back to us is, where's our priorities? Do we care more about a person's phys- spiritual health rather than their physical health? And I understand in, in a world of you know, uh, x-rays and MRIs, it's hard for us to detach from how important our physical health is versus our spiritual health. And it's very hard for us to prioritize all of that. And it's almost like the next time somebody in our church goes to the hospital for something, the first thing on our mind needs to become, how's their soul? How are they doing spiritually? How are they talking? Where's their state of mind? What are they meditating on right now? What's their focus, right? Are they pressing in? Where's their heart? Are they withdrawn? What's going on spiritually? Because, you know, it's kind of like to cut to the quick. We're all going to get something. We're all going to die of something. The Lord tarries, right? And my wife, she is still, you know, I think my wife is amillennial, I think. But man, she prays for the rapture all the time. Because she sees the potential suffering. Lord, come, please, rapture us out of here. <laughs> so I understand the temptation to not want to face the inevitable, and that is the deterioration of our physical, external, temporal frames, our outward tent, in other words, in this world. But what matters is what's inside, what's going on within us, spiritually, in our hearts. And that's why thanksgiving for the Apostle Paul He zeroed in in what could be called the two uh, most important factors for him, which is very simple, very lofty, profound, but very basic, faith and love. Look at the text. He says we ought to always give thanks to God, right? He says why? And then look at the the causal connection here. Because 
your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. NASB trying to do the best it can with what Paul wrote because it's kind of it's kind of complicated the way he wrote it technically in the Greek. It's interesting the way he wrote it. And whenever Paul does that, when he gives me a hard time exegetically, I always stop to think, why is Paul doing this to me? (laughs) Why can't he just say it like the way the NIV reads it? (laughs) Why is it so choppy? It's probably because he's trying to show us something in there that he's really trying to emphasize. And there are. There's some interesting nuggets in here. First of all, there are two uh, present active verbs here that are important, and those are the verb uh, enlarge and the verb grow. In other words, they are present active tense, meaning that these verbs are displaying that what Paul understood from this church is that they were continually, habitually abiding in these virtues. Their, uh, their faith was uh, getting bigger. It was getting larger. And there, uh, a matter of fact, that's why the NASB translates it greatly enlarged because the Greek word that he uses here is actually just speaks of a superlative increase. It just uh, it, it has that preposition who pair, which means something that is uh, something that is growing uh, beyond it's something that is just beyond. It's 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 beyond sort of what he even expected, probably. But it is abounding, in other words, and that's what he is so thankful for. He is jealous to see the church thrive and survive and succeed spiritually, even from the beginning of their conversion. Turn to uh, first letter, first letter, chapter one, verse nine. Remember, uh, Paul gives thanks earlier in that first chapter. That's another Thanksgiving chapter. He's thanking God for all these things that. God is doing in them, and in there, he thanks them for their initial conversion out of paganism. Don't forget who we're dealing with here, the Thessalonians. I think sometimes we forget. These are people that are reared in a deep pagan culture with false gods all over the city, statues erected to the sky of pagan deities like, you know, Artemis or whoever, Zeus or all the other pagan false gods a God for this, a God for that, a God for this, a God for fertility, a God for money, a God for crops, a God for you know business and family and everything. They think everything deserved a God. And so these uh, Christians are coming out of that and thank God that they came out of that paganism. And this is what he says, verse 9, the, uh, the, the churches in the surrounding area, they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The living and true God means the only God that can raise you from the dead. All the other pagan deities will leave you rotting in the grave. But the true and living God can resurrect you. He has the power to raise you to newness of life. And he says, and to wait for his son from heaven, who he, see, who he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. And so there, Paul, thanking God for their initial conversion. But now, oh, alas! And from a pastoral perspective, I could totally understand the nature of this Thanksgiving. That the next step is a few months later, maybe six months, maybe a year passed since the writing of the first letter to this letter. And so the question is, how they doing? Because it ain't about how you start, right? 
It's about how you finish. Those who endure to the end will be saved. And so as Paul is looking in on them now and seeing how's it going with them now, right? Remember, part of the first letter was that the Apostle Paul was concerned about them because he had spent such little time there, maybe two months with this church, okay? Day and night, two months teaching and preaching among them, okay? But that's it. That's what scholars kind of estimate, a short little stint that, you know, resulted in the establishment of a viable church. And so naturally, you would think, man, Paul is going to be very preoccupied with how's that little fragile you know, vulnerable little church doing, you know what I mean? It just started. And so now he says, thank God that your what? Your faith is greatly enlarged and your love is also growing ever greater. And so those two issues there, love and faith, love and faith. Uh, Faith, uh, to start there, is absolutely important. But these virtues, when we talk about love, when we talk about faith, it's kind of like theology. If you are a true Christian, I check in on you next year, you better know more theology than you did last year. You better. You better be growing. You better have gone through enough sermons, enough Sunday schools, enough books, where you can legitimately say, from last year, I have learned more theology, and I know more theology now. Okay, that's for all of us. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we must grow theologically, doctrinally. That is understood, right? Across the board, usually. But really, you can have all the theology. But then the question of virtue comes into play. Sometimes Christian virtues like faith and love are critical telltale signs of actual spiritual growth or the lack thereof. One of the things that we were so impressed with with the people in Mexico, I mean, truth be told, it's always the case in the mission field, guys. I don't know why. Maybe it's just the suffering. Maybe it's just the fact that they don't have a lot of times all the conveniences and spoiled with all the comforts that we're spoiled. But we were so impressed almost instantly with their love and their humility, and their devotion to one another. It was family. And there were 600-plus people there, and it just felt like you were in a big family. Don't get wrong. Don't, don't, don't. Let's, not, um, you know, let's not turn this into high, you know super spiritual type of thing. There are problems there. I just got done talking about what Pastor Aaron Block is going through. It's not, there, there is no, you know, the, remove the sort of super Christian kind of thing out of your mind. That's not what it is. But it's, we're all going to have that. But through it, through it, in the context, in the midst, is our faith, is our love flourishing Because I believe we can be going through a hellish time in our church and you could be spiritually flourishing. I really believe that. Listen to what one Puritan, Thomas Adams, said about faith. Our heavenly king is pleased with all our graces. Hot zeal, cool patience, that pleases him. Cheerful thankfulness, weeping repentance pleases him, but none of them are welcomed unto him without faith. 
In other words, faith is indispensable for all the graces. Let me give you another quote. This is uh, by Thomas Watson who says, Faith enlivens all the graces of God in our lives. All the graces of God in our lives. This is what he says. He says that the life of the saint is nothing but a life of faith. He goes on. Now pay attention. I'm going to quote extensively here just for a second. He says, faith enlivens the graces. Not a grace stirs till faith sets it working. Faith is to the soul what the animal spirits are to the body the fluids within us, right? Exciting, lively activity in it. Faith excites repentance. It is like the fire to the still which makes it drop. When I believe God's love to me, this makes me weep that I should sin against so good a God. Faith is the mother of hope. First, maybe the most important part of the quote, first, we believe the promise then we hope for it. You see, he says, faith is the oil which feeds the lamp of hope. Faith, is, faith and hope are two turtle dove graces. Take one away and the other one languishes. If the sinews are cut, the body is lame. If the sinew of faith is cut, hope is lame. Faith is the ground of patience. He who believes that God is his God and that all providences work for his good patiently yields himself to the will of God. Faith, therefore, is a living principle. You know what that means to us? What that means to us is that everything, every exercise of our soul, every aspect of our lives in Christ is uh, surrounded, if you would, by faith. Faith informs it. Faith is needed for it. Faith is around it, sustaining it, supporting it fueling it, all of that. And when I said, first we believe in the promise and then we hope in it. Brothers and sisters, that's the way that hope works, or faith works. Faith, the, the best thing you can do for your faith is to give it the word. So the promises. Give it the promises of God. Give it the word of God. Let faith feed on the promises of God. Let faith feed on the Word of God. Take the Word of God out of your life. How are you going to have strong faith? What are you hoping? What's your faith on? What is it informed by? You see, they, 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 sort of, they have this sort of a symbiotic relationship. You take away faith, and what does the Word do? It's inactive. You take away the Word, then your faith becomes stagnant. You must have both. And that's why I say Faith is believing in the promises, or generally speaking, in the Word of God. Then move forward in your spiritual exercise. First, confront your faith with the Word. I just wanted to camp out here all day, but I cannot. Paul speaks of love as well. He says, the love of each one of you toward one another. Amazing. I've been preaching now. How long have I been preaching now? What, 12 years? That's not counting informal ministry, but pastoral ministry. And John the Apostle was correct. That as an elder, meaning, hey, I'm an old guy. And uh, probably uh, John the Apostle, they're writing 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, right before Revelation, was probably in his late 80s, early 90s. So he's an elder, and he's saying that the, the, the essence of Christianity 
is to love one another. The heart of it, the soul of it, the love bond between believers, that is the proof in the pudding of Christianity. It is what will cause us to be willing to lay down our life for one another. Oh, literally lay it down. Literally in the context of a, of a certain place, in a certain country, in a certain context, with certain persecution. The willingness to identify with the persecuted church, even if it means I will be persecuted for that. What's going to hold you together right there? Are you going to impress somebody? appear in some missions newsletter somewhere who cares you either love that person like the true brother and sister that they are in christ and you're willing to lay down your life for them or you don't and therefore love is so potent so potent paul in the first letter if you go there he already spoke of this in terms of his own relationship with the church and then uh, going forward with their relationship among themselves but chapter 3 verse 6 he says but now First uh, Thessalonians three six he says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love, there it is again, those twin virtues. He says, and that you always think kindly of us. Here's a critical word here. I mentioned this last. I jumped up and down last time on this. Right, longing to see us, just as we also long to see you. God forbid that for you and I, we ever become bored with church, bored with our brethren, over it, not connecting because we have no good excuse, claiming that no one is you know, reaching out to us or that we're isolated and we don't have fellowship or anything like that. You know what? You know what is the cure for that? Sacrificial love. Always thinking and preferring the interests of others above ourselves. Why is there not more love and fellowship within the church? I'll tell you why. Christlessness. Because we're not like Christ enough. That's it. That's the whole problem. We're not willing to put a, a, a towel, a gird ourselves, lower ourselves, and wash each other's feet until we know that we have become servants for one another. And yet the Lord of all the universe did that for us. What did He say in John chapter 13? Why did He do it in the first place? He did it as an example, as a pattern. He is the prototypical church member who serves His brethren in an exemplary and a sacrificial fashion. That's why Paul goes on to say here, if you're still there, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12, he says, May the Lord cause you to increase and to abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. I'm telling you guys, the longer I live in Christ, and the long, I'm just going to say it unqualified, live with the consequences. The longer I live in Christ, I tell you what impresses me more than anything it ain't your doctrine. It ain't your uh, ability to read Greek or Hebrew. It ain't your ability to quote so-and-so and that you have read such-and-such. It has become your commitment to love through the pain. Your commitment 
to be involved, to stay excited about church and fellowship and people. That is true maturity. That is truly Christ-like. And I know it's a false dichotomy. If you're doing that, you're probably in doctrine. And if you're in doctrine, you should be doing that. You should be doing that. But it often is not the case. And so the apostle here is praising the church, thanking the church for their perseverance. Look at verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. And then verse 5 all the way to verse 10, he's actually going to console the church, comfort the church, and try to build them up. These, are, these brethren have gone through something. And uh, probably more than anything, they've gone through some sort of socioeconomic oppression by the culture. It's not that they're all being martyred or something like that. But there is significant cultural oppression. They are seriously being ostracized from their community, right? Uh, what did Jesus say? He said this is exactly what would happen. Uh, in the Jewish context, he promised his apostles, they're going to throw you out of the synagogue. And by the way, when the Bible says that you'll be put out of the synagogue, uh, commentators have point out that what that actually means is not just excommunication from the church. You know why? Because the synagogue was at the center of the town. It was the center point, the focal point of the social life of the community. To be put out of the synagogue was tantamount to becoming a pariah in the whole community. Everyone would know that you are out of sorts. You would have a big mark on your back throughout the whole town if you were put out of the synagogue. It was huge. And these, uh, boy, where's that verse? You go to the first letter. Uh, yes, chapter 2, verse 14. He actually makes an equation between what happened in Judea among the Jewish believers and what happened, what's happening with them. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. You see that? Anywhere where Christ is flourishing and being preached and churches are being established, expect for the same pattern of persecution to follow. It doesn't matter where it is. Wherever Christ is being accurately, biblically, faithfully preached, it doesn't, you could be in the Bible belt, which we are, I heard we're like the buckle of the Bible belt, but you could be in the Bible belt and you could be persecuted by pastors for preaching truth. Go into your typical Southern Baptist convention and hold up the Bible and preach Romans chapter 9 and you'll see what happens to you. <laughs> you might be put out of the convention. Just reading it might get you in trouble. So we, we have our equivalents. They're there. But the Apostle Paul is thankful, most of all, brothers and sisters, now let's hone in. He is thankful for their endurance. And this is what I'm prepared to tell of all of us, is that we, we have undervalued perseverance and endurance. I don't understand the doctrines of grace, 
right? And the last point on the tulip is, uh, what is it? Uh, perseverance of the saints, right? Or preservations of the saints. People try to qualify. They always try to one-up. Anyway, so, you know, okay, perseverance of the saints, uh, perseverance, preservation, whatever. In other words, God in his faithfulness will keep us from final falling. Praise God. If I didn't believe in the preservation of saints, I mean, we should live literally spiritually schizophrenic lives. I mean, literally, I mean, get up every day. It's like, wow, am I out? Am I in? Am I, you know? They call it the, what is that, Armenian Daisy, right? He loves me, he loves me not, he loves me. (sighs) But thankfully, we have the doctrine of preservation firmly taught in Scripture. And what did Jesus say? No one is able to snatch you out of my hand, right? No one is able to take you out of the Father's hand or his hand or his grip. You are in the grip of God. And no one can pry his grip open. Not even yourself. Because that's the Arminian trick is, well, but what if you jump out of his hand? (laughs) What are you talking about? (laughs) Then you were never in his hand to begin with. I mean, that's what John says. But uh, endurance is so critical. And I hope that that is what will occupy a lot of our thinking as we think about what is to be prized, what is the spiritual life of the church that is to be truly prized and valued. Where do we lay weight? Where do we lay value if not in the preservation and perseverance of the people of God? I mean, my wife just showed me this abominable picture of a young girl that used to congregate with us years and years ago, and now she's Facebook pictures where her and her husband are cross-dressing and Hebrews chapter 10, and we will close there. I used to think, you know that verse that says, it's more difficult for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And I used to think the hardest thing in the world is to get saved, right? Just like the disciples. If this is the way it is, then who can get saved? This is impossible, right? But now, I'm I'm honestly putting more stress on who will abide. Who can endure till the end? I mean, perseverance now that, you know, they work together, but it's become more like, man, when will I stop getting those pictures from Facebook or whatever? Um, Okay, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35. Brothers and sisters, this is the exhortation that I want to lay on us as we go to our fellowship meal now. It's in Hebrews, familiar passage to us. Hebrews 10.35, ready? Therefore, this is shortly after he just got done talking about don't uh, neglect congregating. It's no, con- no coincidence that he just got done talking about going to church. And, and, and from there, he says, don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward for you have need of endurance wow why is it so hard because we have need of endurance why is the race sometimes feel so difficult complex laborious to use calvin's word agonizing at times truly agonizing at times don't you feel it brothers and sisters the agony of sanctification at times Because we need endurance. 
So God has to train us. He has to, he's got to put us through all this stuff so that 50 years from now, when you're lying in the hospital on your deathbed, for whatever reason, you still love and know Christ. That's why. That's why he does it. That's why we go through what we go through. That's why it's hard in the home, at work, in our own hearts, in our own minds. That's why it's difficult in the church, in ministry. Take your pick. It's because we're in need of endurance. The endurance that's producing us in us, what he's saying is that it is indispensable. You cannot do Christianity without it. You're not going to make it next year if you don't go through these trials this year. Because you're going to be too weak next year. So now, we've got to build you up. We've got to put you through it. That's what has to happen. And then he says, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. I can't preach on that. <laughs> it's like I've got to turn a blind eye to it. It's too much. And y'all are like, I'm hungry. <laughs> Crockpots are right there. I'm eager to share a meal with you guys as well, but let's pray. Father, forgive us of our sins, Lord. We confess to you our great need of perseverance, our great need of endurance. Lord, we need to endure We're like runners in a race. Some of us weary, clinging to life, looking for that person that's going to hand us the the cup of water, the cup of Gatorade or whatever. We see the line. We see the finish line. We know. We've heard about it. But it feels like that last lap is so far away, I can't even see it right now. Lord, I just pray that you would remind us of just how great and infinite the reward is. It's not good to say it will be worth it. It is worth it now. But in a sense, it will be so worth it. We will never, ever, ever regret any drop of sweat or blood that we shed in sanctification because of glorification. And so, Lord, set our minds on those things for which we ought to give you the most thanks, which is love, faith, perseverance. Jesus name we pray